together. Turn to Hebrews 9 this morning, beloved. Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9, as we continue in our study in Hebrews, we come to the ninth chapter. We're going to read the opening 14 verses. This will be part one of dealing with all these verses. We'll not be able to address them all. But we'll make a start. Hebrews 9, verse 1. This is the Word of God. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. There was a tabernacle made. The first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubim of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as, at the, first, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Amen. This is the very Word of God, beloved. It is inspired. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Receive it as the very Word of God. And the people of God said, Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for help here around thy word before we come to this table that communicates love and mercy. I pray that the most downcast or perhaps even the most doubting saint this morning might receive encouragement that what they need is freely available to them. They need only believe. Should there be any of us harboring sin and holding on to that which we know is against thy will, may we, by grace, give up all our sin and give our hearts entirely to thee. Let none of us come to this table to eat and to drink in an unworthy fashion. As unworthy as we are, there's a right way to come and it is in humility, confession of sin, and resting in Jesus Christ. So give us grace. Build thy kingdom. Give victory over the tormentor, the accuser of the brethren. 
Bless our souls with peace, we pray. I give the Holy Spirit for this time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. For those who were here last week, you will remember that we considered the promise of a better covenant that is given to us in the latter part of Hebrews 8. In that covenant, we see the encouragement that there is tremendous assurance regarding the provision of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is greater understanding and grace and power to live a holy life as He puts His laws into our mind and in our hearts. There's greater awareness of the fact that we are His people and He is our God. I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. There is more awareness of the forgiveness that we have in verse 12 and more clarity concerning in verse 11, those who are truly the Lord's people. But all of this, of course, will have a greater day ahead when finally there is a true obedience to His law, where the new covenant will bring us right into the very presence of God with transformed lives, where this vile body is made like unto His glorious body, and we are enabled and empowered to live truly holy lives. This is why, even as we come to today and we think about the Lord's table, we, every month when we do this, we, we pray again, even so come Lord Jesus. We long for that day when we love Him with unsinning hearts, when we're able to live in the full glory with the curse set aside and gone forever, and we are in the presence of our God in a fuller degree than we have ever known as we shall see this morning, the old covenant given at Sinai preached the gospel, but it did so in type. The new covenant is different in that it is more effective because the work, the grounds that gives us confidence of our acceptance before God has been accomplished. It makes sense to us to see God sending a son, his perfect life, his perfect sacrifice as a substitute for the people, his resurrection from the dead, gives to us assurance that none of the types could give. And yet the types were given that they might give indication of what is to come. This morning we don't point to the shadow, we point to the reality. We see what it is that has been accomplished and our hearts are encouraged because the work to make us acceptable before God has been done. And we know that Christ has done sufficient and the work is complete. When the Lord called the covenant that was ushered in by Christ a new covenant, He didn't call it another covenant or a second covenant, but new in order to communicate that it would supplant the old. The old must give way. And as we consider the tabernacle, we see another aspect of that which was instituted at that time. It wasn't just the high priest, but the context in which he was to minister. Again, remember, if I can just help you to summarize, pull back here, why is the apostle dealing with these things? He's been dealing with Christ as a superior high priest. In doing so, if there's to be a supplanting of the old order, then there has to be a removal of that covenant. That is indicated. It's been anticipated. Jeremiah 31 is the passage quoted in chapter 8. That gives rise to the fact that there has to be then this coming new covenant. It's going to supplant the other. And of course, everything that came along with it then is removed. It's gone. And so you have this high priest who takes the place of Aaron and the Levitical line in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have in him, you don't just hang on then, well, we get rid of the priesthood and then we keep the tabernacle and all the things, or at least in that time the temple. You don't keep all these things. They also must go away, and they find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ as well. As you read through these verses of Hebrews 9, I want to remind you that as in every other comparison, the purpose of the apostle is not to denigrate the tabernacle. He's not saying that it was worthless. He's not casting aside any more than he said anything like that about angels or Moses or Aaron. They had value. They have merit. Christ is simply superior. 
And that's what we see here in what I've titled for the opening 14 verses, The First Tabernacle Considered. The First Tabernacle Considered. We're taking this all as one part, and as I say, I only will deal with the first section of it this morning, but the heads of these verses will be as follows. We will see in the opening seven verses the features of the first tabernacle. We'll move on from verses 8 through 10 to see the failures of the first tabernacle. And then from verses 11 through 14, we will see the fulfillment of the first tabernacle. We will deal mostly with the first head. We'll touch on, I think, the second and we'll get nowhere near the third at all until a future occasion. So the first tabernacle considered. Now keep your Bibles open. Follow. Some of you are going to be familiar with this in that you've studied the tabernacle. You're familiar with the details given in Exodus. And in you have a good picture in your head. I say to the children, make sure you keep your Bibles open. Because some of these details may not be clear to you. But I will try to make it clear as we move along. The features of the first tabernacle. Verse 1, then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. The Levitical priesthood was founded upon that covenant given at Sinai, as we've said, and so to remove the Levitical priesthood required the supplanting of the covenant that gave rise to it. And we've established that already. Now we come to see that the apostle shows the need to dismantle the features of that old covenant worship. It was based on, verse 1, a worldly sanctuary. I need to clarify that you're not thinking when he says worldly, he's using it in a sinful fashion. We might talk about love not the world and things that relate to the world that the Christian and the believer is to avoid. He's not using it in that fashion. He's just simply saying that which is, is contrasted with being spiritual, it is earthly rather than that which is heavenly. In fact, if you go down to verse 24 of Hebrews 9, Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself. And that's the contrast. He's not going into these holy places made with hands, earthly, here upon the earth, but into heaven. That's the contrast. The worldly sanctuary no longer has its purpose. Now, there's a notable omission as you read through these details. Because those of you who are aware of the tabernacle will know that part of the tabernacle was the outer court. There was a part that was walled in and there was an entrance. And as you come into that entrance, there stood before you the brazen and the bronze altar. There's where the vast majority of the sacrifices took place. And you have the sacrificing there and you go on a little farther, there's a laver, a, a, a brazen laver where they would wash and perform ceremonial cleansing rituals and so on there as well. That's in the outer before you go into what we call the, the tabernacle proper. And so in dealing with the tabernacle, you might ask, well, why has he left out those outer parts? Why are they not included as well? Well, A.W. Pink suggests that the reason that the outer court is irrelevant to the present argument of Paul is because the outer court depicted Christ in the days of his flesh. So he sees then the brazen altar as the cross work of Christ, the labor as his ministry and word that cleanses his people. But that's not the focus here. Not dealing with the days of his flesh. We're moving beyond to where he has entered into heaven itself and contrasting what this tabernacle proper showed and depicted and contrasting it with Christ who is currently seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, I don't know if Pink's right in that. I, I can see certain merit to what he is saying. But there are places here, and then there are the priests. As you look at the features, there are the places and the priests. And the places come up first as you look at it. Look at verse 2. There was a tabernacle made the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. Just before we, we move on looking at this, we talk here, and he deals with the tabernacle, rather than the temple. Now, if you put yourself in the first century, 
what existed still as this was being written in Jerusalem? The temple. The temple was there. The priests, in fact, you get to chapter 10, he indicates that he's aware that every priest is still standing every day, offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So it's not like he's unaware of the fact that this is going on in the temple. But he deals here not with the temple, but with the tabernacle. And in fact, through this epistle, there is no real direct reference to the temple at all. It's applied through the passage I just quoted, but it's not dealt with at all. And again, Pink, he notes that this is because, quote, the temple was not erected until after Israel were thoroughly settled in their inheritance. And the Holy Spirit is here addressing a people who were yet in the wilderness, end quote. In other words, Christians haven't yet entered into their full inheritance. And so again, we, we keep that in mind. This, this comes up again, Hebrews 11, we, we, it, will, it will focus on what is still to be experienced by Christians, what we look forward to. So that, that may be true. It may be that focus on the tabernacle instead of the temple because of the context of a pilgrimage that God's people are in as they traverse in this world. So there was a tabernacle, verse 2, a tabernacle made, a structure of uh, 45 feet long by 15 feet wide approximately. It was divided into two compartments. One was 30 feet long, the other 15 by 15 feet square. And it was always oriented in a sideways fashion where you would enter in uh, from the east side, progressing west into the building. And so you have in this tabernacle proper two rooms, boys and girls, two rooms, two places, two sections. One we call the holy place, verse 2. That's what's dealing with there. And then you go through a veil, verse 3, and you go into the holiest of all or the most holy place. So you walk into this first room. You walk into this first room, the holy place, verse 2, and we're told what's there. Wherein was the candlestick, and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, the candlestick. Again, you walk in, again, from that east side, coming west. You walk in, facing west, and on the south side, to your left, there would be this golden candlestick. And it was wonderfully crafted in such a way where it was all one unit, and it was fed with oil and burned. And you ask, well, well, what was that there? You know, we, we sometimes see it. In fact, just off the road here, you see a depiction of it. Jews refer to it as a menorah. And you, well, what was that? What, what, what was God doing in putting that golden candlestick that burned in that place? Again, it's, it's very dark, except that it's being lit by this candlestick. And again, people surmise as to what is going on there. Uh, you, immediately, you might think of Christ as the light of the world, but if you take some understanding again, they, they see this as that place being a depiction of the life of the church. So what you actually have there in the menorah on, on the left, that golden candlestick, what you see there is a depiction of the church as she is fed with the oil of the Holy Spirit, burning that she becomes light in this world. It reflects the burning bush. Many have made that connection, that it's actually reminding them of that burning bush, pointing them back to that occasion. I mean, this generation given to this has just come through that. Moses, they're aware of, stood at the burning bush where he heard that message from God, and God promised that he would be with them, and he would carry them through, and his presence would be with them through that period of persecution, upholding them, sustaining them the entire way. And so you have there in that, some might debate it, but I put it to you as a reminder of the people of God living in the world to be light, fed. They can only be light as they're empowered by the Spirit of God. They can only do that by possessing oil in their lamps, to use the language of the parable that depicts the five wise and five foolish virgins. They need to have oil in their lamps. And by having oil in your lamp, Having the Holy Spirit in your life, Christian, young person, you need the Holy Spirit in order to be light in the world. Because we're told that we are the light of the world. Jesus taught us that in Matthew 5. 
But you not only have the candlestick, you have the table and the showbread. This is placed on the other side, on the north side, on your right as you would walk in. And tables, of course, are places of fellowship. I don't need to elaborate too much there. We have it put before us right here. The table reminds us of fellowship that we have with the Lord. And there are 12 loaves, the showbread, bread of faces, indicated that was reflecting the very countenance of God. It showed the sustenance of the people of God. How they, work, they live in this world is by, by being fed, fed on this bread that keeps them. There's 12 that shows they're sufficient for all the 12 tribes, all the people of God. There's enough and to spare. And you see this come out when Jesus feeds the multitudes. And he feeds these thousands and thousands with such little. And then there's, there's even more that's sparing after they're all fed. On one occasion, they actually bring up 12 baskets full. And I, you wonder if that's a, a pointing back to the very table of showbread where there are 12 loaves, the 12 baskets showing this provision, this endless provision for the people of God to live in this world, feasting on Christ. Again, those of you familiar with the tabernacle may then be wondering, well, hang on a minute. You have the candlestick, you have the table and the showbread, and he moves on and he doesn't mention the other item that's there. The golden altar, the golden censer that was pushed up right against the veil directly in front of you as you walked in. And he doesn't put it here, even though we know its location was in the holy place, the first room. And strangely then, it comes up in verse 4, when he's dealing with the holiest of all, or the most holy place, that other room, which had the golden censer. Now, there have been all sorts of remarks as to why this is. How come, how come this doesn't seem to be as we know it has taught in Exodus? And some have surmised, well, that's human error, shows you that the Bible can't be trusted, that can't be depended upon, because you have, you have mistakes like this. <laughs> if, you, if you imagine, if you... If, can you imagine this? I mean, you read through this book and ask yourself, is this man a beginner in Jewish custom and what they did? There's no way. And this is such an obvious part of the entire experience. There's no possible way. It's like a math professor getting one plus one wrong. I mean, it's just not going to happen. There's no possible way. So it can't be that. So why then? Why is it mentioned when we come into the other most holy place? Well, well, we'll, we'll look at this a little more in just a moment. But you'll remember that that golden altar of incense that was placed on that far side, I'm tempted to turn. Maybe, well, go, go, to, go to Revelation 8. Revelation 8. Do you see this? So you know I'm not making this stuff up. <laughs> Revelation 8. Verse 2. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets, and another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer. There was given unto him much incense, he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. So you see the imagery here. You have this depiction of the offering standing here, this, this golden altar of incense. The idea was that there would be a smoke of the, the, the manufactured ingredients that were placed there, and the heat of it would cause this aroma, the smoke to fill the space 
And that, that filling of it and the arising of that incense was a depiction of the prayers of the saints. It's like being offered with the prayers of the saints, signifying that as it ascends, that's showing you what the prayers of the saints are doing. Verse 4, the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. Now, this is, this, is, this is what's going on here. As you walk in there and those priests engaged at the golden censer, they were, they were praying. And it was symbolizing the prayers of all of God's people that ascended up before God. And it's pushed right against the veil. It's pushed right against the veil because it's almost synonymous with the throne that's on the other side. And so whenever... The apostle is dealing with this. He has no qualms at all in putting the golden censer right there in the holiest of all. Not because it was on that side of the curtain, because they had to go in and pray all the time. And yet the type was such that the high priest alone could enter into the most holy place once a year. So he can't be going in and out there all the time or the type falls apart. So you can't put the golden censer there. You can't put that aspect in beyond that, that second veil. It has to be accessible every day because we're to pray without ceasing. There's constantly to be the prayers of the saints. But it is pushed against the veil. It's right up there because it ascends before the throne. It's, it goes into the very presence of God. And so theologically, it's as if it's right in that space itself. So we move into then, look at verse 3. And after the second veil, that is you have the first veil that brings you into the tabernacle proper, into the, the holy place. Then you have that second veil or that second curtain that opens up to this 15 by 15 square foot space, which is the most holy place. Now, boys and girls, what do we mean by most holy place? Or what does the apostle mean by calling it the holiest of all it's the use of the superlative. It's the Hebrew idiom where we talk about the song of songs, right? It's the superlative song. There's no song like it. It's a superior one. Or we talk about the king of kings. There are other kings, but there's no king like this king. And so it is for this place. This, and you see how it's actually smaller than the holy place. Seemingly intensifying the sense of the presence of God by making it a smaller location where this intense experience of God's presence is located right here. When you walk into this place, and as you would walk in, and again, as we'll see, the high priest was the only person, the living high priest was the only person allowed in there. And he was only allowed in there once a year on the Day of Atonement. So this is a very special place. You don't, most people have never been in there or seen it. And as you would look, there was a reminder to the priests every single day that they couldn't go in there. You want to know what that reminder was? Because all the priests engaged in that, that first part with the brazen altar and the, the, the outer court, as it were, in that area. And then they would come in, and they would see the menorah, and they'd see the table of showbread, and they'd all be involved in various aspects of responsibility. And every single time they walked in there, there was a reminder, do not go through that veil. And that reminder was, there was a depiction of cherubim on that curtain. And it was a reminder that brought their minds of their understanding right back to the Garden of Eden. When their father Adam fell and rebelled against God, he was driven from the garden and God protected Eden, the place of the immediate intense presence of God where Adam could enjoy the presence of God like nothing else. And because of his sin, he's driven out. And the way into Eden is guarded by cherubim. You can't get back in. You have no right. So in God's appointment of this whole thing, he puts cherubim there 
telling those priests, do not dare enter. Cherubim, guard this place. You will die if you enter in here unauthorized. It was a reminder to everyone. We have no inherent right into the presence of God. Boys and girls, you cannot be good enough ever in your life to walk into the presence of God. Your mom and your dad tell you, they encourage you to be good. They want you to behave. I understand their reasoning. As a parent, I want my children to behave as well. But you can't behave your way into God's presence. Can't. Can't be done. You can't do enough, boys and girls, to walk into that holy place where the presence of God is known. Behind that curtain were the things mentioned in verses 4 and following. You have the golden censer. You have the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold. This chest made with wood and then overlaid with gold, both outside and inside. It was heavy, really heavy. And within that chest were certain things. You have a golden pot that had manna. Forever remind of the provision of God in the wilderness. How Christ himself fed them all those years. You had Aaron's rod that budded, showing resurrection and life. And his leadership was challenged. And the tables of the covenant, the two tables of the law, there. That's a depiction of the Lord Jesus Christ. You look to that chest and it's, it's typifying something true about the one to come. The one who has a right to be in the very presence of God. He is able to provide for all sinners. He is able to rise from the dead. He has the power of life. And he is able to Maintain and keep the law of God perfectly. There's no one else. No Buddha. No Muhammad. No anyone of any religion. In any part of the world. In any generation. Could do. What that ark was saying. God's servant was going to do. And over it. Verse 5, the cherubim, cherubim of glory, these heavenly beings depicted in gold, stretching out their wings, overshadowing the mercy seat. The place where once a year the high priest would come and take blood and sprinkle it there. That's a wonderful picture. Because we never read of them ever cleaning it. Never. Stained by blood. We read of the saints who are under the altar. And our Lord Jesus there as the Lamb, slain as it were before the foundation of the world, bearing wounds forever. The marks of a sacrifice. This Ark of the Covenant features prominently in Israel's history and you can study that for yourself but it disappeared it disappeared disappeared with Solomon's temple and its destruction around 586 BC and the Jews have never had it since and they may try to rebuild a temple but they have no Ark of the Covenant and they're missing tons of things they don't know the priest, priestly line some may think they do but they don't they don't have the Ark of the Covenant. They don't have the symbol of the presence of God. Even when they came back from captivity and they built that second temple and Herod sought to make it so grand 
when he came along and extended it, made it more elaborate, caused people to stand and marvel at it again. But there is no Ark of the Covenant, no presence of God. It was gone. And would not return until God sent his son, made flesh, to walk among us and die on Calvary for the remission of our sins. So I say to you, the golden censer is included in this section because this is this is typified our prayers going into the presence of God. Now, we can't go into the immediate presence of God today, can we? We can't. But you know what does? Our prayers. Our prayers. Your prayers. Your prayers for your loved ones. Your prayers for the kingdom of God. Your prayers that are right felt burdens, sanctified burdens that you feel in your heart. Those prayers, you can't go there, but your prayers go right into the very presence of God. What a thing that is. So we have the places, the holy place, the most holy place. We have also the priests, verse 6 and 7, the priests. And when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. So verse 6 deals with the work of the Levitical priests that revolved around the outer court and the holy place. As we've said already, they were busy. They had to make sure, make sure they, the candle, the lampstand never went out. They had to make sure there was always the bread provided. They had to make sure the ingredients that made up that which was uh, presented as incense was always available. They had to help the people outside with all the sacrifices that they brought to the brazen altar and so on and so forth. The high priest had a very peculiar work, an exclusive work, where he goes into that second, into verse 7, the second, that is beyond the second veil, into the second location. And he went alone once every year. This is, as I've said, the, the Day of Atonement. And he went in in a very particular way. This is the most solemn day of the year. I don't know, does America have a most solemn day of the year? I don't know what that is. You can tell me afterwards what that might be. Solemn. This, this is not a day for, for, for fireworks and celebration. This is a day for mourning, for fasting, for sober thought and consideration. And the people were all gathered. Everyone was called to assemble on this day. And their involvement, as I've said before, was, was minimal. They're watching. They're just watching and they're, they're fasting. It's the only prescribed fast in the Old Testament. Adding to the solemnity of the occasion. Helping them to focus on what's going on. And the objective of the Day of Atonement was to deal with the sins of the people and to do so with no contribution from themselves. There are many sacrifices that take place on this day. But the passage focuses upon the fact that the, the priest, the high priest rather, had to deal with his own sins and the errors of the people. You see that verse 7, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. He had to kill a bull, the most pricey of the animals, the most expensive of offerings, recognizing that there he is. He is meant to be the one who is the mediator between the people. He is expected to be perfect, as it were, but he is not. And therefore, the sacrifice must be greater for him because he fails in his objective. And he would carry the blood of that bull inside. He would put incense upon the golden altar, creating a haze before he would enter into the holy place, sprinkling blood of the bull upon the mercy seat. And then he would go out and he would repeat the process with the blood of a goat, 
two goats were selected. There were uh, the cast lots to see what goat would do what work. And so as the lots fell, one goat was selected to be the goat that would be killed and whose blood would be taken in to make atonement for the sins of the nation. And the other would be taken out into the wilderness, carried away. So this is what the high priest then did. They killed the blood of the, the goat. They took the blood of the goat inside, sprinkled it, making atonement for the sins of the nation, all the people. And then came out and laid his hands on this second creature, this goat, who was taken beyond the nation, beyond the perimeter of the people, way into the wilderness as a depiction of their sins being carried away. There were other things that went on as well, but that gives you a sense of what occurred on that day. And it gives you a sense then of the features of this first tabernacle that we've read here in these opening verses. It's a tremendous depiction. It's full of truth. It's, it's promising so much. And yet in the process of it all, there is no absolute assurance that sin has been dealt with. This brings us in, and as I say, I'll just touch on this, the failures of the first tabernacle, the failures of it. Verse 8. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. The time of Reformation coming, of course, with the ushering in of the new covenant and Christ's work. As I say, we'll, we'll maybe come back to this next time and look at it a little more, but the failures, I just wanted to see a couple of things. The access for the people into God's presence was not yet known. That's what verse 8 is saying. The Holy Ghost, this signifying, and you see how he is talking about the Spirit of God is teaching us this through this. The Spirit of God is instructing. He is the one that's telling us what's going on here. And what is the Holy Ghost saying? That the way into the holiest of all, that's the most holy place, that's that far, that's protected with a veil with the cherubim on it, is not yet made manifest. There's an expectation that we should be able to go, but we can't. And all that was going on, every part of the ceremony was telling the people that they couldn't go in. And the way was not yet available to them. It wasn't, they had no revelation of how it could even happen. No understanding. Again, there were pointers. There are types, there are pictures, there are shadows, there are things that indicated what was to happen, but all they had was access to the foreshadowings of the gospel. They did not have access to the incarnate word, who having no sins of his own, having no need to shed the blood of a bull, could walk in there with the value of his own person, shed his own blood. Our Lord Jesus, when he ascended into heaven, when they watched him go, and he said that he had to go, and must go, he would send the Spirit. What he was doing is going right into, he was, he was depicting that, that way right into the, the heavenly presence of God itself. And that blood-stained mercy seat, he becomes, as it were. It was all pointing to him. As he blood-stained, as it were, goes into the very presence of God. Sits there, having the right to be there. And to stay there. The people did not have this knowledge. They did not have this confidence. There were pointers to things. 
There were indications of what would occur, but there was such dimness and uncertainty. So they did not have then this full understanding of how they could have this way into the holiest of all. And while the first tabernacle stood, there was no knowledge, no confidence. Then secondly, the remedy for the people's conscience was not yet known. The remedy for the people's conscience was not yet known. Verses 9 and 10. This tabernacle was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect. Now, there's debate whether this relates to the high priest or whether it's just generally talking about anyone who came into the tabernacle. My thought is that there is a, a general aspect and application here that anyone who comes to offer anything, they can't be complete. They can't have this, this sense that they have done everything necessary to be reconciled to God. The fact that they had to come again and again and again and again, and there was no assurance that it just caused them this, this want or lack for their conscience, pertaining to the conscience. That is, no assurance in their own heart, no awareness that guilt has been actually removed, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances. They've all this, these trappings. They're there until the time of Reformation, but it could never actually deal with the issue. Defilement by sin reaches the conscience and no performance of ceremony can remove the guilt. And this was the problem. That they could engage in this and they came away with no assurance that what they did dealt with the issue. As I say, all it did was point to what needed to occur. It didn't actually deal with the problem. And you contrast this then with our Lord Jesus Christ. You contrast it with the assurance you have this morning sitting at this table. It is so different. It is so different. There's no blood being shed here. Why? Why? Because what blood could be shed of greater value than the blood of God's own Son? There's no one coming here trying to present themselves on behalf of us all. I'm not doing something here and then coming out and saying, the animals have been killed, the goat's been taken into the wilderness, and pronounce a benediction upon Israel and say that shalom, peace be on you. I, 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 I'm not called upon to do that. But there is one who has. There's one who came and he he went to Calvary. He, he offered himself there upon the cross. He died the just for the unjust. He presented himself without spot to God. He bore our sins upon his own body on the tree. And in that work, he obtained, as it says in this chapter, eternal redemption for us. It's done. The work is complete. We sit this morning and we enjoy the harvest of his work peace of conscience because we're not looking to a goat and a bull. We're looking to the Lamb of God. Like we're seeing in Him that which can actually satisfy. Our minds, our conscience can reconcile the fact. Whereas before, there's no possible way the blood of bulls and goats can take away sin. We can see that He who had no sin, being made sin for us in doing that, obtains righteousness and gives it to those who believe. So we sit at this table, young person, older person, you sit at this table and the grounds of your assurance to come and sit at this table this morning is based on Christ's work, not your performance over the last week or the last month. Maybe last month you said to yourself, I'm not going to participate because the guilt and weight of my sin. Beloved, let me say to you, let me urge upon you that this is not a place to miss 
this is not something to just slide past and ignore. You are called. Christ invites you and you need a good reason not to show up. And there's not a good reason in saying, I'm a sinner. He knows you're a sinner. He always knows you're a sinner. The question is whether you're holding on to your sin, living in continual rebellion against your God, or you're coming in penitence and recognition of your shortcomings, and you're looking, and by faith beholding the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. That is your confidence. Christ receiveth sinful men. He shed his blood for sinners like me. When I come confessing my sins, he is faithful. He is just to forgive and cleanse from all unrighteousness. There is no grounds not to come unless you don't believe. Unless you're living in active rebellion against him. What glory this is. Let's bow together in prayer. Dear believer, this is a, a prized occasion for you where you can sit here and know that you've received an invitation from the King of Kings. Come with a thankful heart. Come in contrition. Come in joy. Behold, he lives. He is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending. And he bids you come. Lord, bless thy word and our consideration of it as we come now to the table. For the emblems on this table only are the sensible signs of the very truths we've been considering. They point us to and remind us of God was made flesh. He shed his blood and died that we might live. As we sit then around this table, sanctify the season, melt our hearts Give us, Lord Jesus, give that joy you promised to your disciples. My joy I give unto you. My peace I leave with you. Oh God, bestow it in abundance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.